Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available now as a paperback, as an audiobook, and as an ebook. And that ebook, esteemed reader, that ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, don't worry about me. I'll get your money when you come back for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People and Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy. Why would you want just the start of a trilogy that won't give you the whole story you need it all um and under the super secret pen name robert kent i've written some horror novels for slightly older readers like my young adult novel all together now a zombie story and the book of david which is available as a free ebook for the first chapter in a five volume series as well and i mentioned that because i feel like some of my horror author experience might come into play for our conversation tonight uh, my guest, oh, uh, don't forget, check out uh, interviews at middlegradeninja.com. If you listen to the show regularly, and you should listen to the show regularly, you already know that. But if not, oh my God, go to middlegradeninja.com. So many wonderful interviews await you, including a seven-question interview with tonight's guest, Ali Malenko. Uh, Ali, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for patiently waiting through that long and tedious interview. <laughs> that was lovely. Thank you for having me. So uh, a esteemed audience knows that I would never make you sit through me blundering through your biography and getting things wrong about you or a description of your book. It would just be weird for both of us knowing how badly I had done. Uh, so uh, if you would give esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background, we'll go from there. Sure. So um, I'm, I'm Allie <laughs> and uh, I have um, a middle grade book out right now called Ghost Girl and my second middle grade book coming out also from Catherine Teagan Press, HarperCollins is Disappearing House, which is going to be out on the 16th of August. Um, and I have been writing a variety of things for a pretty long time. I mostly started out with poetry and then I did some YA. And then I decided that after, a, a, and we might talk about this, but after a very arduous experience with the publishing world, decided that either I'm going to write the things that matter to me the most, or I'm never going to write again. And that wound up being middle grade horror. Um, I don't usually call them spooky stories. My publisher does, and I love them for that. But for me, I, I feel like I write horror, and I think writing horror for kids is important. And it, um, we'll probably get into that, too. <laughs> We can get it. We can get into all of it, but we can start right there. Why is it uh, preferable to call it horror rather than spooky? So it's not that it's preferable. I think it's just for me. It's it's a choice. Um, I I'm trying to destigmatize the idea of writing horror for children. Like I'll just tell you a small side story. So publishing is a really weird space. Um, and when I found out that I was getting Ghost Girl, my first book published. I, I couldn't tell anyone who was announced in Publishers Weekly and that wasn't gonna happen until the contract was done. And for reasons that I don't fully even understand that took about five months, which was a really long time to keep the Did secret of like my life. Slow drying ink, couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, they went back and forth about like royalties and, and, and like foreign rights. And it was just, you know, it, you gotta nail it. It went much faster on the second one because it was like, we'll just do the same thing again. Um, but it was a long time keeping a secret. I mean, I told my family, obviously, but, and some close friends, but I couldn't talk about it publicly. And I, um, I work in an archive 
And I had a researcher come in and she happened to be a biographer who wrote the biography of my favorite writer in the whole world. And I'll just leave it there. And I kind of got a little starstruck. So when I saw her and I was giving her the material she asked to see, I said, hey, you know, I'm getting my first book published. And she was very generous. And she's like, oh, that's wonderful. Like, what? congratulations. This is so exciting. What do you write? And I was like, well, I write middle grade horror. And her face just dropped. And she was like, wait, like for children? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, scary stories, like for kids. And she looked me dead in the eye and she was like, I would never let my children read something like that. And I just, I don't know. I, I just had this moment where I was like, wow, you're the first person outside of my family that I told this to. And like, obviously you don't know me and you don't owe me anything, obviously, but like, that was your reaction. And that's just wild. And I just kind of made a little pact with myself that like, this was something I was always going to be really proud of because the fact of the matter is scary stories were the things that mattered to me when I was a kid. Um, my mother, I love her forever, but she was very protective and very worried about scary stuff entering my life, which is fair because I had like ridiculous nightmares. So it's like, it was for her protection too. So she could like, you know, sleep through the night and not have to deal with me. But like, these things were always kind of kept from me, you know, and it was the kind of thing, like I would, I would sneak read scary stories to tell in the dark out of like the school library. And I'd read like one story or two stories and put it back on the shelf. And I decided after like a whole publishing fiasco um, with a YA book that I had that I was gonna, I was gonna write stories for the kid that I was and the kids that are out there today that like scary stories. So it's not that there's a difference between spooky and scary. It's, I think it's just a difference that I make because I think it's, I think it's okay for kids to read scary stories. And I think it's important actually for kids to read scary stories. And I think this is how we teach kids that the world, they already know the world is scary. They already know that they, they live here. I mean, God, look at the last few years. Like they know the world is scary and I feel like scary stories, it, it, it's what arms them. It's what, it's what puts a sword in their hand and tells them, yes, you can defeat the monster because middle grade scary stories make a pact. And that pact is, yes, I will take you into the dark. Like I, the author will take you into the dark, but I will bring you back out to the light by the end of the book. Like that's the pact that we make. That's the trust our readers have in middle grade scary stories. And I think that's important and I think it matters. So yeah, I don't like to, wow, that was a really long-winded answer. <laughs> I don't like to, I mean, the, the word spooky is fine. It's fine. It's totally fine. I just also think like this idea that we're like somehow traumatizing kids by telling them scary stories is just nonsense. And so I use the word scary. <laughs> something you said uh, specifically about horror that horror uh, trusts its reader uh, that middle grade horror trusts kids mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you mean by that I mean that I think that horror trusts 
especially middle grade horror, especially trust kids that they're ready for it. Because I think the thing is that we as adults tend to do is we do a lot of gatekeeping, you know, I'm like, I worked as a librarian and I saw the, I was a children's librarian for a period of time. And I saw the amount of gatekeeping, gatekeeping that happens. And it's like, we decide what kids can handle. And the thing I love about middle grade horror is that it trusts the kid to handle it because it's a safe, scary. I mean, that's what it is really. It's, it's not real. And the kid knows that as long as they close the book, it's over. Like if it's too much for them, they'll walk away. My niece walked away from my book. She was like, absolutely not. I'm good. You know, and, and it trusts kids. It trusts the kids can handle what they can handle, that the kids who need to walk away will walk away. But that the kids who want to be there get what they're looking for. And I think, you know, like horror also, much like comedy, elicits a physical reaction. And that that's a that's a hell of a thing, you know? I mean, that that's a lot. Like, yeah, I think I I I think that middle grade horror looks at, like I said before, looks at a kid and says, I'm gonna take you into the dark, but we're coming back out to the light. Don't you worry. Like it's gonna be okay. Let's go fight some monsters. I agree with 95% of what you said, because of course, <laughs> I, of course, I'm a, I'm a fellow horror author. I 100% agree. And I, I'm a longtime horror fan and was as a child also, um, except for the part that I, at any point I can put this book down and walk away. And <laughs> no, my friend, we've all read just that right horror novel that even if you didn't read it to the end, it had that moment that stayed with you forever. And that's what's so wonderful and insidious about horror uh, as that I little mean, breaks off and follows you home for life. <laughs> I, I agree. Cause, cause you know, like, uh, you know, the, growing up, I didn't, I'm older than, than the appropriate age that was like goosebumps. So I was more of a scary stories to tell in the dark kid. Um, Mary Downing, uh, Mary Ha Down, I forget her name, but Wait Till Helen Comes is the name of the book that absolutely did that thing to me where I was like, well, I'll never not see this again in my head. Thank you. But also I read Stephen King at like far too young an age. Oh, yeah. But I think a lot of us did, you know, I mean, I had two older sisters and my, my middle, the, my first oldest, she, she's not so much with the horror, but my, my oldest sister, absolutely. Her shelves were nothing but King. And I used to sneak into her room and read like three pages when she wasn't there, read a chapter and like leave like a little marker. So I know where I left off. <laughs> so, you know, you're probably right. There is definitely that moment where it's like, oh, oh, I've done the damage, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I'm not saying it like it's a bad thing. I think it can be a very, very good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a reaction. It's, it's, it elicits a response, like a really intense response. And I think that is amazing that a book can do that. I think books should all do that. The other nice thing about, you know, whether it's Pennywise the Clown or whatever, whatever monster floats your boat, shark from Jaws, fine, um, is it gives you a nice imaginary, not imaginary, but uh, a, a place to hyper-focus all that fear and get it off of your, uh, off of your plate for a moment so you can focus on other things. 
because of, yes, as you make it very clear in the, in the book, where that's not the ghost that we're afraid of, it's all the things that we're projecting onto the ghost and, and the fears we're not actually speaking in the name of, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's literally exactly what I put in the book. It's like, it's not the ghost you're afraid of, it's what the ghost represents. And you're right, like, that is the cool thing about horror is you can take all the things in the world that you're afraid of and you can then be like, spin them and project them onto whatever like character or movie monster or slasher you're experiencing and be like, oh, that's the bad guy. It's not all of the things that I have anxiety about. <laughs> well, I want to uh, I want to talk about your publishing journey and I definitely want to hit that uh, tumultuous experience because esteemed reader loves to hear about tumultuous experiences. Those, those are so fun. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit while we're here talking about horror anyway. Let's break right into this appearing house and then we'll circle back and and we'll we'll we'll, we'll tease that tumultuous tumultuous journey for later. But uh, true to my word, I will not make you sit through a, me summarizing your book. What does esteemed audience need to know about this appearing house? So this appearing house is a haunted house story. Um, when we meet our main character, Jack, she is 12 years old. She is five years out of a cancer diagnosis, and she is experiencing a degree of anxiety about that. And she's also experiencing what she fears are symptoms of a recurrence. Um, so she's she has a fall from her bike. She's got some shaky hands. But most importantly, she's worried that she's having a hallucination. And that hallucination is because out of nowhere, a house appears at the cul-de-sac where she rides her bike and it wasn't there one day and then the next day it's there. And she becomes kind of transfixed on this house and what it could mean. And she, um, she convinces herself and her best friend that they, you know, if her best friend can see the house, then she thinks there's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine because it's real. It's not something that I'm seeing. Two neighborhood bullies show up and they, tease them and they convince them to go into the house and then they can't get back out. So Hazel, the best friend, and Jack get trapped in the house. And as they journey from room to room full of nightmares, Jack starts to realize that the house exists for a reason. And she is intuitively tied to that. And that until she figures out how to get through it, she will never get back out. And it is also a meditation on trauma and on confronting what trauma does to your life. So some heavy themes, but I think it's still fun. Uh, I absolutely 100% concur. It's extremely <laughs> fun. Uh, and there are some nice uh, little moments that will break off and, uh, and haunt readers much, much later. Be just about to go to sleep, and they'll think about food with teeth in it. Oh, oh I'm I was awake. gonna say, is it the teeth? It's the teeth, isn't it? <laughs> pretty, that's pretty creepy. It's the teeth, yeah, yeah. I really went all in on teeth. <laughs> that uh, fear of yours is to accidentally bite into a tooth. Is that a fear of mine? Yeah, is that uh, like a, a law and health? No, I don't have like a tooth thing, I just. Uh, actually, you know what? That's that that the the genesis of that scene is that a friend of mine told me about a nightmare that they had where people were opening like covered dishes 
on a, on a table and all it was was teeth. And I was like, thank you for that. I'm going to just tuck that away for future use. But no, I don't, I don't have a weird teeth thing. All these non-novelists walking around with their little psychoses that they share. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> that could have been a whole short story for you, but you're never going <laughs> to use it. And I'll, I'll take it. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I snap. I was like, that'll be mine. So who is the uh, ideal reader for this appearing house? Oh, wow, that's that's a great question. I've never been asked that question. Um, I think that a lot of people will think that it's a cancer book. Um, I feel like I need to full disclosure, like I had cancer, I was diagnosed with cancer when I was 37. So a lot of this book is me, I guess. <laughs> um, but I, I think a lot of people will say it's a cancer book. I don't think it's a cancer book, but I hope that kids who have been through something hard and I get, you know what it is? I guess for me, I think that this book is about trauma and, and trauma comes from a lot of different places. Um, a friend of mine who, who went through a completely different experience and, and, and was a, was a survivor of, of childhood abuse, you know, really saw themselves in Jack and what Jack went through. And that's a different experience than, than, a, than a medical disease. And I think that's what I was trying to do. So while I definitely think that people will say it's a cancer book, um, it's not to me. And it's fine if it is to them. But I feel like I wrote this book for kids who have stared into the abyss and walked away, you know, and, and found a path back to what feels like the life they used to live. And that can take a lot of different shapes. Um, and I also think that this book is also for kids who have never experienced anything like that at all, because I'm a big believer in the idea that books are both windows and mirrors so it's a it's a mirror to see yourself it's a mirror to see your experience reflected but it's also a window to see what else, someone else experienced and I hope that any kid who has had a beautiful and easy and good and wonderful life could read this book and also understand what it's like to be that kind of scared and I hope that any kid who has been that scared sees themselves as the hero, I guess, <laughs> you know, sees themselves as the person who can pick up the sword and, you know, slay the monster, so to speak. Something uh, you said in the afterword, and I'm going to try and find it uh, since I'm trying to reference an exact quote and not pass it off as an original thought that I had while reading your book. <laughs> I, uh, you had uh, talked about this was a book that was never supposed to, yes, this book wasn't supposed to exist. It was supposed to just be a word doc, a testament to the fact that I got sick and I lived through that storm and I used the only tool I've ever had to figure out how to go on. Why is a middle grade novel the best tool for your experience of having cancer at 37? And what changed that this didn't just become a word doc? So... These are very good questions. Um, 
I think middle grade was the best tool for me because it's the place that I'm most comfortable in telling stories. I mean, I could have written a memoir, but it wouldn't be the same. I need some kind of fantastical element. And I feel very, very, very tied to like the like 10, 11, 12 year old Allie that used to exist. Like she still is a very like significant voice in my head. So I kind of knew, so also, I mean, I wrote a book of poems about having had cancer called Better Luck Next Year, um, which was something a friend of mine said to me, which I thought was just brilliant. Um, and I feel like I exercised a lot of what I had been through. And then, you know, I, I wrote Ghost Girl and I wrote a ghost story and I knew I wanted to write another like scary story for middle grade. And I got really, you know, I'm a, I'm a big Shirley Jackson fan and I got really into the idea of writing a haunted house story. And I was like, huh, haunted houses typically are representations of like a mental illness. That's typically what they stand for. Like the house is like a diseased mind. And then I had this moment where I was like, well, what if it was a diseased body? And what if you talked about what you've been through? Um, so I think that's why I went in that direction. But as far as why it's not a Word document on my computer, um, that belongs to my friend, Amber McBride, who is a phenomenal writer and the author of Me Moth and, and many, many, many more books that are coming out. And she and I share an agent and we have been friendly and we were beta reading for each other. Like I read her stuff and give her notes and she reads my stuff and gives me notes. And I wrote this book and I was like, well, I'm not going to do anything with it because it's, it's too personal. It's too, I guess, weird. It's too much. I think I thought, I thought. And so I was texting with Amber and I mentioned it and she was like, no, send it to me, send it to me. And I was like, Amber, no. And she was like, no, send it to me. And I did. And she wrote me back like the next day and was like, you need to send this to our agent. You, you need to send this to our agent. And that was the thing that made me think that like, maybe this could be a real thing. Like maybe, maybe the story that I thought was just for me would matter to other people too. Um, Amber gave me that. So yeah, that's why she's, she's thanked in the acknowledgements for the reason why this book did this. <laughs> now I have to ask, when you thought it was just for you and never going to see the light of day, were there things in there that had to come out like, oh, okay, well, this is, this is going to, people are going to read this. So now let me take a few of these things back. Or was it more or less that it survived the translation? I mean, it, it's pretty, it's pretty close. I think um, it was a little, it was probably a little darker and, and it wasn't, I didn't, I didn't take them out. Um, my, my brilliant editor was like, watch, let's dial this back. This is for eight to 12 year olds. And I was like, okay, fair. That's fair. Like, I mean, they're children, like <laughs> keep your adult nightmares to yourself at some point. Um, so yeah, so I don't, I don't think that I stuff out because again I just feel like a lot of the voice that I use when I'm writing is, is, is a, it's just a very middle grade voice like I've written YA I have and when we get to the harrowing publishing stories you'll hear about it um but I just I I felt very I felt Jack's voice from the start 
So yeah, it, I didn't, I didn't have to take too much. It wasn't that it was too, yeah, I'm saying it was too personal, but it wasn't that much different than the story that like will exist in the world in, in, in a few weeks. I think, I think I thought it was too personal. I think I thought no one wants to read your sad cancer book, Allie, <laughs> you know, like, and I think that the thing that Amber convinced me was that because I made a point in the manuscript, I only say the word cancer once and it's not until the end. And it's not a secret because it's on the jacket. Like it's, it's written right on the jacket flap that Jack is um, five years outside of a cancer diagnosis. So it, it's not a secret. It's just that I wanted it to be about more than one very specific thing. I wanted it to be about, like I said, about trauma and about what it is to stand at the abyss and then not fall in and walk away and learn how to live your life. It's uh, fascinating to me that even as you're writing this, I assume just for you, there's still a wonderful horror literary device right there, just driving the plot yeah. along. Ali, you don't need that for a journal, but there it is. Yep. Horror is good like that. Yeah, it's a nice thing about horror. You're never that far off topic. It's always uh, more excitement just right around the corner. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it fun. And the stakes are always known. Like, uh, you might yep. not make it. You might. We'll see. <laughs> oh, oh, yep. no. So this idea that... Um, uh, one, I love the, I, I, I can remember the when I read books, horror novels at, a, at the middle grade age, um, when, a, when an author respected me and when they didn't. Uh, if you give me your little binicula story, it's fine, it's cute, everybody loves binicula, but it was also a little bit pedant, uh, pe what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, pedantic. Pedantic. A little yes. bit, uh, oh, he's, he's, he's draining carriage, isn't that scary? No, it's not scary, give me the real <laughs> Um, and then you read something like the I, I've talked at length about the witches by Roald Dahl, but it's the first book where I was like, "Yes, thank you, Mister Dahl." That that's scary stuff. with the whole head moving. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, kids don't technically die without first being transformed, but you know, it's it's not subtle. <laughs> They're dying. It is decidedly not. He did not pull any punches. Spoiler, who gets drowned after having been transformed into a mouse. And like the fact that he got transformed into a mouse does not change what happened to him. You cannot unify it sufficiently to make that not death. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, why did I go on that way? Oh, because uh, I wanted to talk about this idea that um, because this story does go right at it um, um, without without getting too deep, um, it, it, it is more than a cancer book. We're looking right at trauma, which uh, will be very real for children. So why is it important to um, have that, uh, that, that, that middle grade readers can have that trust that it won't end bleak, that we will come out of the darkness? Why can't we end really tragically sad? I mean, sometimes life does end that way, right? It's true. And, you know, there are, there are books that, that are for middle grade that do do that. Like when I say that's, I, I've often said like, that's the rule because a lot of people, 
in the horror tra circles that I traffic in, I'm one of the few middle grade writers. Most, most of the people I know who write horror are adults. And so I've been in scenarios where I've been on panels and they're like, well, what's the difference? What's the difference between middle grade and adult horror? What can't, you can't have a body count. You can't have gore. You can't have blood. I'm like, well, you can, you can all do all, you can do all those things. Like, that's fine. But my rule is always that your reader trusts you that in the end, it's going to work out okay. And that is the rule until it's not the rule. Um, and there are definitely books out there where it does not work out okay. I mean, something like A Monster Calls, which I I actually, when I was pitching this book to, well, when I my agent was pitching this book to editors, was one of the comps that they used. And now I don't know if you're familiar with A Monster Calls, um, but it, it, it does not end well. It ends incredibly sadly, and it faces that that sadness. It faces death because there was a, that was the only trajectory it could possibly be on. And I think that what the author did in there was really important and really good because while so much middle grade is like, oh, it's going to get dark, it's going to get bleak, it's going to get dark, but like, hey, the kids win, hooray! When a monster calls is like, it's going to get dark, it's going to get dark, it's going to get dark, and it's going to end exactly where you knew in your heart of hearts it was going to end, where we all sort of end. And it is one of the best books I've ever read on, on explaining the complexities of death to a child. I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely a beautiful book. So I don't think that it has to go that way. Um, I use it as like a guideline. I mean, I could have had terrible things happen by the end of this book if I really wanted to, but I didn't want to. I, I wanted to write about a girl that learned how to face what had happened to her and how to find another path, you know, to, to, to find not the life she left behind, because I don't like to think of it that way, but just to find how to keep going, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it... I feel like it's the rule. Like I know lots of other middle grade horror writers will say, you know, you have to, you, you have to bring them back to the light at the end. Like you can't, you can't just like abandon these kids in absolute bleakness, but sometimes there are books that do. And those books are really important and they exist for a reason. And I think those also help kids. So honestly, I feel like I just exist in this world where like, all books for kids are good. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, not that they're all good books, but like everyone, I think everyone who sets out to write a story for a kid is coming from a place of empathy. And, and I think that's the best thing that books can be and what they can do, which is to just basically be like, this was my terrible experience or my great experience or my crazy experience does anyone know what that feels like and you put it in a book and then someone on the other side of the world is like yeah I know exactly that feeling and then like you've done a better job at being a human together you know like you understand each other a little bit more and I think that's the whole point of books and I think that's especially especially the point of books for for kids um 
just to make the world feel a little more manageable, maybe a little smaller, maybe like a place they belong. Fair enough. I like it. I uh, I hear my sign off. I agree. You should bring the kids back to the light as often as possible. It's a story. Let's end it nicely, and then uh, I mean, they'll, they'll find out about the darker endings on their own. Sure, sure, sure. Well, uh, a little more question in this line, and this is almost like asking about the sequel before we go back and we talk about the origin and that uh, I haven't forgotten. We're going to talk about your publishing experience as well. <laughs> Um, but I did want to ask, uh, because you, uh, you, you have this great phrase that I'm assuming is this common phrase and I just haven't been exposed to it, that someone is nud, meaning there's no evidence of disease. Mm -hmm. uh, that has been uh, you, at least I think at the time you were writing this, that you were nud. How does being nud, we know how it, uh, how it impacts uh, Jack, how does that impact the author? How does that impact your daily writing schedule? Does that change what you write? knowing that you might not have time to write all of it. Um, so I, I am NED. I am no evidence of disease, which is what in the, the world of cancer, we call it because there is no such thing as a cure. So we don't really say that we're cured. We're just, there's no evidence of disease. Um, and I guess... Um, I guess I do the same thing that everybody else does. I, I, I get up and I have my day and I work and I go to my day job and I have dinner with my husband and I read books and I go to art museums and I don't think about it every day in the same way that other people who have never had a challenge like being told that they have cancer doesn't think about it. Um, that said, you know, a couple times a year I have to have scans and, and you know, that can be a challenge um, simply because you've already been here and you just, uh, you don't want to, you don't want to hear those words again. Um, but I do, I do believe that, I do believe that I'm not any different than anyone else like this was an experience that I went through and it sucked don't get me wrong <laughs> it wasn't fun and I definitely do not recommend um but I'm I'm here and and you know like I don't I can't look at my life like a shortened life I can't I can't look at it as you know, I have to like do all the things and see all the things because I've always lived my life that way anyway. Like I've always understood that like, this is it. This is, this is the go around that we get, you know, like I've always understood that I'm also incredibly lucky to be here. Like all, everything had to go right through history for me to even exist. And that didn't change with, with, with my diagnosis, you know, that I still feel that I'm incredibly lucky that you're incredibly lucky that we're all just ridiculously lucky to wake up every day. And one day we won't wake up. And that's, that's how it works. But I don't get up every morning and, and worry about it. Um, but it took me a little while to get here, you know, like 
in the beginning, I definitely did. <laughs> you know, um, the 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 year two after diagnosis and and through treatment, you know, that was definitely an extremely trying time. Um, but yeah, no, I I I, I guess I'm I'm just I mean we're all just kind of living our lives, aren't we? Sure. I mean, I and everybody who's listening to this are going to die old and in our beds like the old lady in Titanic. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hopefully, hopefully we will all die old in our beds. I mean, that's that's the ideal, right? Like, but I don't know if some of us don't. I don't know. You know, I, I just don't think that I can. I think part of for me, part of the. I. I I described I described my life um, the the time before diagnosis and the time after and the space in between. I call it a cleaving, um, as in like you know something has been cleaved in half. And those two timelines have never ever lined up exactly perfectly for me. But in the years that have passed, it's the closest they've ever been. And I think that that might be true for a lot of people. Like I I. I subscribe mine to the fear of dying, but like, I think, I think anyone who makes it into like 40, you know, has a moment where they're like, huh, my life has changed. You know, like maybe you become a parent and that's how your life changed. You know, maybe you lose someone you love and that's how your life changed. But like these cleavings, like they, they happen and it's not so much that you need to be the person that you were before It's then you need to know who you are now. And you need to know that like what you've been through, it doesn't, it doesn't define you. It, it, it isn't who you are, but it's a part of what has made you. Um, there's a whole theme in the book about um, a, a Japanese art um, called Kinsagi, which involves the repairing of a broken clay pot with gold. And I really feel like that that is that is kind of where I I exist. This idea that like you're not you're not repairing a broken object. Like if I if I got broken, if I was broken because of what I went through, and if anyone's broken because of the things they go through, you're not really being repaired into what you were. You're being remade into something new. And that new thing is just as beautiful, if not more beautiful than what you used to be. And that is the point of the gold that they put in those clay pots. And I just think that's a really beautiful way to look at the fact that every single one of us will get whiplashed by trauma at some point in our life. And um, I don't know, you like, you. You look at the last few years with this pandemic. I mean, is anybody the same that they were in 2019? I mean, this is like my second health crisis to go through. I'm definitely not the same. So I don't know. You get remade. And I think that's a good thing. I had a uh, a friend, I have a friend, um, a writer friend, I have a lot of those, but without getting too specific, uh, faced a um, very uh, a dramatic health crisis that could have gone either way, was uh, wasn't quite 50-50, it was more like 70-30, uh, uh, so could have been looking at the end and, and an abrupt end. 
Um, so I had a couple of months and this person's response, uh, I've always uh, admired, I, I think I admire it, uh, is to write faster. Wanted to get that last book done and make sure, sure. it was as good as, 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 as it possibly could be. Uh, and so when you're um, looking uh, death in the eye, so to speak, although uh, we're all kind of looking at it, whether we know it or we not. We are. <laughs> Extremely <laughs> fragile walking around. There's only one end here, friends. Except the movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when do, is there a moment there where you feel like, because I felt this way during the pandemic, a question of, is this writing thing still relevant? Is this the most important thing for me to be doing right now? Does it block you from writing? And when do you return to writing? Or do you write, do you write harder? I write harder. Um, writing has always been, for me, the thing that grounded me when the world started to spin. Um, be that just like the general chaos of life or like something major, like a pandemic. Writing has always been the thing that refocuses me. And I write, I write, um, okay, I'm going to say I write every day, but like I'm getting older and sometimes I sleep in. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I write in the mornings um, at 445 in the morning, which is pretty early. And then I, I write for two hours and then I go to my day job. And I've always kind of existed in a place where like, that is my time. Um, that's my time to do the thing that matters the most to me. And if I have a good writing morning, I don't care what happens during the course of the day. Like I could have the worst work day in the world and it won't matter because I had a good writing morning. And for me, I didn't skip a beat and I I know so many people who struggled with trying to create during the pandemic and I completely sympathize and that they just didn't feel that they could and trust me I did a lot of laying on the couch in an existential crisis too but I feel like I've trained myself and my brain that when it's time to write it's time to write and everything else is is outside of this room I'm in this room and that's all that matters and I do think in a lot of ways it saved my sanity, um, both through my diagnosis and through the pandemic and through God knows what else is going to happen next, since we seem to be on like the dystopic crash course. Nope, um, that's, that's all. It's all smooth sailing from here. Yeah. <laughs> is that what it is? Okay, good to know. Good to know. All right. We got the all okay from Rob. It's good. <laughs> I'm calling it. <laughs> no worries, esteemed audience. <laughs> Fine. It's like that meme of that guy in the fire, and he's like, "This is fine. It's fine. <laughs> that's, that's where we all live. That's where we're all living." Um, but yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely think that writing is my, uh, I guess, like security blanket. You know, it's the thing that I do when everything feels like it's falling apart. Um. And I think it's interesting that when everything feels like it's falling apart, I immediately like, oh, I'm going to write horror. Because, <laughs> you know, why not? Yeah, don't need any comfort, like fuzzy, good stories. Let's just, let's just write ghosts and chaos and plates full of teeth. So, yeah. 
I find this is just me personally. I find that if I'm sad about something or deeply frustrated about something, then that's a good time for horror, especially if I'm writing for older readers, because then I can be the one extracting revenge. Um, whereas if I'm uh, feeling a little bit overwhelmed or immediately following the pandemic, I, I wrote more middle grade. Like I'm, I'm going as hard and as far from scary sure. as we can. Sure, that and makes sense. I, I can. I can totally see that. I can totally see that. There are times where you're, there are times when you want to delve deep and there are times you got to dig in your heels and take it just a little bit, a little bit more gently. So, but you, you, you're, you're writing all the way. You think that um, having faced, this is 20, 2016 that uh, you got diagnosed? Um, 2014. 2014. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so does that recalibrate how all of the news that is to follow the the Trump years that, that that come? Does that recalibrate that? Hey, I'm still here. It's it's a shame that it's all madness, <laughs> but I am still here. Does that does that change your perspective on things a little bit? You think? I think that it did. Um, I think that the I think the really weird thing. So I I was I was diagnosed with cancer in 2014, and it was something that. I, my husband and I went through very privately. We didn't, we didn't tell a lot of people. Um, I didn't share this with my parents at the time because they were also both very ill and they had very important surgeries that needed to take place. And I worried that if I had told them at this exact moment, then they would, you know, opt not to do that, which is exactly what they would have done. So for a small period of time, it was just something that my husband and I carried. And we, um, I told a few close friends, I told my sisters, and that was it. It was a very tight circle, um, which weirdly I think was really good for me because I can't imagine going through that and like, I don't know, being on Twitter or whatever, you know, it just seems insane. Um, so we went through this experience where it was like, our lives have been upended, like completely, completely upended. Um, but we were like, we're just a very tight unit. You know, it's like, it's like, okay, we got to do X, Y, and Z. That's the thing about, the thing about getting sick too, is it's like, you get put on like a conveyor belt and it's like, the doctors tell you what to do. And you're like, okay, I'll do the things you tell me to do. And I don't know. Cause I don't know. Cause I'm not a doctor. So I'm just going to do what you tell me. to do. So 2014 was just like very quiet summer for everyone that wasn't me <laughs> or my husband. And then like 2016 happened and I watched all of my friends just very publicly fall apart. You know, Trump happened and then it just kept getting worse. And then the pandemic happened. And I'm not saying that I have this sort of like place where I'm like, oh, this is fine. Because obviously it's very unfine. It's very not fine. I mean, there's, there's a pandemic, possibly two at this point, who's to say? But I do feel like I've had those moments where I was like, I watch my friends go through what I went through in private in 2014, publicly now. And it's, it's been very interesting. And I don't, I, that is not in any way a judgment call because I, I, I love them and I, I want them to be okay. But I definitely have had moments where I was like, oh, okay, you've never had a health crisis. So let me see if I can help you through this. because done this before I've got like I've got like 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 I've got a little bit of training in what it's like 
to have your whole world get turned upside down. And, and, you know, I mean, obviously it's different because in 2014, my husband and I were like, we would go to the movies, which is something, you know, in Brooklyn, you definitely weren't doing in 2020, you know, you weren't going anywhere. So I, I mean, I think, I think my perspective on it is that I, I think that everyone thinks the bad will never end, but I, having been through bad by myself and then been through bad with everyone else, it's, it, it, it's going to end. It'll be okay. <laughs> So let's uh, let's circle back to the origin. Uh, well, you know what? Before before we leave horror, we've been talking about ghosts and haunted houses. The esteemed audience knows I have to ask, uh, Ali Malenko, have you ever seen a ghost and or a flying saucer? I have neither. No, <laughs> I just got that last comment. Okay, so I've never I've never There's seen a smooth ghost. path ghost. <laughs> you just <were laughs> sail right past it, no problem. <laughs> I've never, so seen, I've never seen a ghost or, or anything else. I've never seen a ghost. Um, I don't know. I like no. I'm sure it was just like military things. But when my husband and I were very young and first moved in together, we were sitting on the back steps of the apartment we were living in. In I was living in Pittsburgh then, and four very distinct lights came together and then came back out like just you know and I've never seen anything like that and I'm sure it was just a military thing I mean I I do believe that because I don't want to think about it so much um but we both looked at each other and was like did you see that and we were like yeah we saw that and then we were both like how about we go inside now and then we promptly went inside so um did I see an alien I don't know I don't know I don't know probably not but like I've never seen anything like that before since in my life. So, and I was completely like fine. It wasn't like I had had some wine or anything. I was totally sober. So, I don't know. But no on the ghosts. I think it's tremendously hopeful to imagine other life out there. I even think I'm here and they wipe us out. I like to think that afterwards, like, it was so quiet. It's so peaceful. We're we're very happy that those humans have stopped making so much racket. This is great. <laughs> I think that it's, you know, I had a, a beloved chemistry teacher in high school who would talk to me about this. And I feel like, I think it's incredibly arrogant to assume that through all of time and through the never-endingness of space that we would be the only life forms that would like reach the whatever pinnacle we're at right now I think what's more likely is that the timing never really worked out and that you know through the millions of years that have gone by elsewhere in other galaxies there have also been civilizations it's just that you know we never really sorted out how to get in touch with each other. That's the assumption I take. But I do think it's arrogant to think that we would be it because it didn't take that much to make people. Like, you know, just a little carbon, a little water. I think that's the whole recipe. I don't know. <laughs> what was it, the first broadcast in the space? Uh, Hitler, anyway. So maybe our, our call got received. Like, yet, yeah, nope. <laughs> we're, we're, I mean, that's fair. I would have hung up on that call too. So 
Yeah. Well, having uh, written uh, about death and thought about death, I think it's fair to ask: Do you have an opinion on uh, what happens, if anything, after the after this life? I have always, um, I've always called myself an atheist. Um, I've always been like, well, when when you die, you die, and that's it. When you snuff that system. And time has gone by and I've had some experiences um, and I've lost some people. And now I would say that I think I fall pretty squarely in the agnostic, we just don't know. And I'm fine with that. If there's something, there's something. If there's nothing, there's nothing. I think I tend to weigh on the side of there being nothing um, because I don't, I wouldn't believe in something like a heaven and hell because that just sounds I'd hate to think the universe was that capitalistic, you know, like it just, that just feels weird to me. Um, but I don't know. I mean, energy is neither created nor destroyed, right? I mean, that's, that's the second rule of thermodynamics. I think sounds it's the good. second. Sounds good. <laughs> I don't know enough to correct you. So yeah, we'll go with it. <laughs> I think it's the second rule of thermodynamics that energy is neither created nor destroyed. So there's just the the base idea that you just you would transform into something else, and and if that something else had sentience, like I I don't certainly know. Um, I don't know. I guess that's my answer. I don't know, and I'm really very comfortable in not knowing. I don't I don't feel like it's much of my business right now. Um, I feel like I'm just a little more focused on how beautiful the world that I live in is even in, when it's not beautiful but like I I mean I think I'm just more focused on the fact that I'm here you know and, and you're here and, and we're having this conversation and and I'm gonna get up tomorrow and I'm gonna work on writing and I'm gonna go to a museum and and later on next month I'm gonna travel again for the first time since 2019 and and those are the things that concern me more than with whatever happens afterwards mostly I just I hope it's I hope it's peaceful. I hope that. I'd like to not have trauma when I die. <laughs> that sounds horrible. Uh, good news. There's an afterlife. Oh, wonderful. Bad news. It's filled with all the people you hated in actual life. Hey, ah! I don't want that. I don't <laughs> want that. Plus, my husband has this very going theory that if there is an afterlife, we'll all have to have jobs. And I don't want that either. I'm like, I don't want to go to work forever. I'm already working now. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> There's an afterlife, but nobody has health care still. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He's, he's like, no, no, no. It's humans. We'll recreate capitalism. And I'm like, oh, God, no. Don't say it. So, okay. Well, let's go back. Uh, we, we've teased to see the audience enough. We'll start with uh, the good parts, which I assume there were some at the, the start of the writing journey before the, before the, the head waves came. So what's your, what's the first time you remember thinking, I am a writer. I want to be a writer. Oh, uh, the first time I thought I want to be a writer, I was probably eight years old. And I wrote a short story about a girl getting hit by a car, which is pretty dark, but feels very on brand. Um, and then I didn't think that anymore because I didn't know any writers and I writers were just fancy people that, you know, it's not like now, like kids have writers come visit their classes. I never had anything like that growing up. Like I never, I never knew a writer. I didn't think that was something I could do. That's something that like fancy people did. 
Um, and then I went to high school and I wrote a lot of really angsty poetry as one does in high school. And then I went to college and I continued the track of very angsty poetry as one does in college. And then through my 20s, I started writing small story, uh, short stories. And then I published a couple books of poetry. Um, and that was very exciting. And then I published two novels on small presses, both of which are, no longer exist. Um, and then I sat down and was like, I'm going to write a young adult book and I'm going to write a science fiction I love science fiction I'm going to write a science fiction young adult book and I wrote a story that was called Palimpsest um which is uh, it's a real thing it, it has to do with like when people used to reuse paper so you could see the writing underneath the writing when they would like rewash like the cloth paper that they had listen I was extra um and so <laughs> So I wrote this book called Palimpsest and the whole genesis of the whole, the whole thing in this book is that um, it's a science fiction book. It took place in New York city where I live and the magic system that existed was based on chess because again, I'm extra. So it was like this whole entire competition of like chess and like you had to move through the, across the board and the board was represented by the city. Anyway, I spent at least seven years rewriting this book, just writing it, rewriting it, rewriting it, rewriting it. I was like, this is gonna be the book. This is gonna be the book of the an agent. And it was, which was very cool. So I got an agent and, and it was great. So just by the way, cause I know that your, your, your lovely listeners like to know the, um, all the gory details. So um, I did get an agent, but initially that agent rejected the book and the only reason they accepted it is because I wrote them back, which is something most people don't ever do, and was like, hey, because <laughs> they were like, um, I really like this, but I, I, I can't, I, I have to pass on it because the ending's just not working. And I was like, oh, but, but, but what if the ending was something else? Like, what, what, can we just talk about this? And she was like, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. And we had this like, 16 email exchange about how the book could be changed and they were like if this feels good for you change the book send it back to me it's what's called an r and r uh, uh revise and rewrite i don't know why they have to say it twice it's the same word um so i was like okay i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it so i did the whole revise and rewrite and i sent it back to that agent and then i sent it to a couple other agents and that agent was like, yeah, okay, it's working. Like, let's talk. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, it's happening. It's happening. Like my whole life, I've been dreaming for this. I'm going to get an agent. This is going to be amazing. Everything's going to come true. And so I signed with her and uh, she's still my agent. Her name is Rena and she is a wonderful human being who I adore. And we signed with the book and we went on submission and every single publisher in the world rejected. And I had what is called died on sub, which means your book. See, most people think like once you get the agent, it's like a half step up to the editor and like a half step up to the publishing deal. But like, it can be a little hairy in there. So um, 
every every major publisher in the world said uh, no, thank you. And the reason they said no, thank you was because the major crux of the story was that the, the main character, while she was going through this like science fiction world, was looking for her grandfather. And everyone in publishing, and I'm talking like everyone, I can't think of a single imprint that didn't reject me. Like that's how hard we went. Every single imprint was like, if you have a girl looking for her family, that's middle grade, that's not YA. And I was like, boom teenagers can't care about their families but okay fine so my agent was like will you think about rewriting it and making it middle grade and I was like sure because I say yes to anything and so I did and it broke me and when I say it broke me I mean for the first time in my entire life I was like, I'm never writing again. I hate this. I can't do this. I don't want to do it. It brings me no joy. It brings me pain and suffering and sadness and crying and laying in the floor fetal position. But I rewrote it. So I rewrote and I sent it to my agent and I knew it wasn't good. I, you know when something you write isn't good. I knew it wasn't good. I knew it wasn't working, um, but I didn't know what else to do. So because I get up to write every day, I think I took like a week off. Maybe I took like a few days off. But like the alarm went off at 4.45 and it was a new writing morning. And I turned on my laptop and I was like, okay, either you write something new or you never write anything again. And I sat down and in six months I wrote Ghost Girl. And I sent it to my agent and she wrote me and said, this is your debut. And she was right. And that is my sad sack publishing story. <laughs> <laughs> it has a happy ending. It's it does a have a happy ending. Horror of sad sack publishing stories. We went into the darkness, but by God, here we are. Out into the light. See, <laughs> but I mean, it is like it's funny because I feel like a lot of people just don't. I know so many people whose books died on submission, and it's like one of those things that nobody talks about because it's like it's just kind of taboo. This idea that like you were good enough to get an agent, but not good enough to get a publishing deal. And I just, I, I hate it. So I talk about this on like, every time someone wants to talk about my publishing journey, I'm like, here, here's how I failed for a long time. <laughs> and then here's how it worked out. Um, and I think part of it too, and, and I guess like, if there's anyone out there who's listening, who is a writer and, and is maybe in the querying trenches, which these days are pretty awful. The thing for me, like the choice between am I ever going to write again or what do I write next is that I had a moment where I said, what were the books that mattered to you the most? And they weren't young adult books. They were middle grade books because I fell in love with reading as a middle grade reader. And the books I fell in love with were scary stories. And so I purposefully said, well, let's just make something you would have loved. And I think that is what I think every writer in the world should carry in their heart every time they sit down to write something like write the thing you would have loved write the thing that you want in the world write the thing that you think is missing because you're the only person who can tell your story and I know people say that a lot and I know it's kind of sounds cliche and I admit that it is but like it's also really really unbelievably true um yeah so <laughs> so yeah 
the uh, interest of destigmatizing, I too had an agent and a manuscript that died on submission. And now I host a podcast where I talk to very successful authors. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to, uh, to ask, now that you had Ghost Girl has, has been a big success, you're taking over middle grade horror by storm, this appearing house is coming out, it's going gonna, it's gonna to crush. Is there a chance you bring back that uh, young adult book and say, hey, you know what, young adult teens care about grandfathers. It's, this is not, you don't stop empathizing or caring about your family when you were no longer a child. You know, there was a moment a couple of years ago, I don't know if you watched, did you watch Queen's Gambit? Uh, that's the chess one, right? Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's one of the million shows that's on my sure. never-ending list of things to get to. Sure, sure, sure. It's excellent, by the way. Um, but there was a moment when that was, like, at the cultural zeitgeist, and people were talking about it, and, like, editors were like, I want the next Queen's Gambit. And my agent was like, should we reshop this? Should we, like, see? You know, let's put the chess book back out there and see how it does. And I was like, uh, no. Only because while I spent seven years writing it, I'm not, I'm a very different writer right now. And if I'm going to put that book out, it needs work. <laughs> like, I, I, it, I, I don't want to put that as a representation of my writing in the format it's in right now. It would need work. And I think also, I think I just want to let it be what it was, which was me learning how to write and learning how to tell a story and learning how to put in the work. And it got me an agent and it did what it needed to do. And I'm fine with that. Um, I know that's the perfect note to end on, but I wanna ask, I know there's a top secret project we can't talk about, but what else have you got coming our way? Oh, so um, I'm working on, and this has been, so I got I, Ghost Girl and Disappearing House came out really close back to back because uh, Disappearing House had already been written. So now I tried to write another book, but then it's like all the all the all the work of writing again comes in between. So it's like then you have to do copy edits, and then you're back on deadline, and this and that. So I've been working on a witch book for a minute now. It's it's been a. Uh, what year are we in? It's been a little over a year, but I keep setting it aside because I have to do deadline stuff. Um, so I'm working on I'm working on a witch book. I'm working on a empowering story for girls that centers a witch as the the the, the best one in the village. Um, yeah, because as I told a friend of mine on another podcast, there is no universe in which I would write a story where the witch was the bad, was the villain. It just, it won't happen. Like, witches are always going to be good, in my opinion. So I'm working on a story about family, about sisters, um, about coming of age, um, about finding the power that always lived with inside you. And it's kind of a dark fantasy. It's a bit of a fairy tale. It's got a very chatty narrator. And uh, I'm excited about it, but I don't, it's like, we're, we're still working. I'm, I'm very much in the working phase. I don't have anything like immediately coming up. At the risk of ending on an underwhelming question, <laughs> I was curious. Um, I know that um, Ghost Girl came out last year in August. Mm -hmm. Disappear 
house comes out this year in August. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, this is the the spooky uh, middle grade stories that are going to be promoted right through uh, Halloween. I assume you're going to go strong through the month of October. So mm-hmm. why are they being released in August rather than October? August, so my publisher releases them in August just um, because it gives like build time. So like you want librarians to spend some time with them so that they can book talk them. You want teachers to spend some time with them. You want kids to discover them so that they're, they're a little bit in the conversation by the time it's officially spooky season. And everyone's like, what's your favorite spooky book? And then lots of people are like, oh, it's Ghost Girl or it's The Disappearing House or it's Lindsay Curry's book or it's Lord Sam's book. Like, you know, it's just, it builds a little bit of lead time um, because books tend to take a minute to find their readers too. Yeah, I mean, think about how many books you buy that you don't open for months on end. I have a pile of books that I'm like, I can't wait to read those, but I'm just not there yet. That makes a hundred percent sense. So it's just marketing. Uh, market ready to get everybody excited and talking about it that way. By the time Halloween finally rolls around, you're red hot. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That was not underwhelming at all. That was the perfect <laughs> note to end on. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for for making the time tonight, Allie, and for being an amazing guest. This was was a great deal of fun. Oh, Where thank you for I having me. Oh, anytime. Uh, you're going to keep writing books. I'm going to keep loving middle grade or come on back. Okay. Uh, where can uh, esteemed audience follow you online, follow you on, find you on social media and all that good stuff? Um, so I have a website, which is just AllieMelanenko.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm not on TikTok because I'm elderly and it's, I'm too old for TikTok. I cannot. I cannot. Bless these young people, bless them. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, and and also like you, you know, my my Gmail is right on my website. I get a lot of um, delightful letters from kids who have read my stuff on there, and it makes my day, month, week, and year. So yeah, I'm out there. I have to read an entire seven question interview. Uh, with Allie, as well as interviews with thousands of literary agents, editors, authors, book people, the world's best people. Head to middlegradenja.com. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. Pay cash money for All Together Now a Zombie Story. It's also really very good and might change your life as well. And as always, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. (laughs) 